book of Malachi in chapter 1. <coughs> Malachi chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. And let's just read from verse 1 and then uh, we'll open a word of prayer. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. As saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you uh, for another opportunity to, to come together and to spend some time around your word, considering the great truths therein. And Lord, as we continue our study this evening in the Minor Prophets, I pray that you would be in our midst. That Lord, you would undertake, you would give us understanding of uh, this book and of the truths contained therein. Lord, I pray that you would empower me through the spirits. You would give me wisdom this evening that I might speak only that which you have me to speak. And Lord, I pray you would teach us uh, through your word this evening. Uh, may we receive a blessing from your word. Pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 1, there we read the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, of course, we've been going through the minor prophets and we're up to Malachi. We're almost finished. Um, uh, Dad or Pastor Davies is still in Zechariah, so he'll still be, still be there for a while. But we're in Malachi and we have three chapters to go and then we're finished in the minor prophets. But the name Malachi here means my messenger. And if you look in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Behold, I will send my messenger. It's almost the exact same Hebrew word, okay, where it's translated my messenger there. It's the same root Hebrew word, and it's just that in chapter 1, it's used as a proper name, okay? And so the, there is some who actually debate whether it's actually his name at all or whether it's just the word of the Lord um, to Israel by his messenger, okay? But uh, most come down on the side that this is a proper name here. This is his name, Malachi, or my messenger. That's his name. And so basically his name means the messenger of the Lord, okay? Or the angel of the Lord, okay? Because remember, angel and messenger are interchangeable as well. And see, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God. And other than his name, we're not told anything else about this prophet. We're told nothing else about Malachi. Throughout the book, this is all we have. Malachi, his name. We have no information about his ancestry. We have no information about his call, no information about his personal life. You know, as for when he gave this prophecy, the very best we can do is look at what he speaks about and make an educated guess as to when he arrived on the scene in Israel. And so let's just do a quick uh, revision, if you like, of Israel's history and see if we can place Malachi uh, somewhere in that, in that picture there. 
Um, and so let's just revise Israel's history after the Babylonian captivity. Okay, if you remember in about 538 BC, Cyrus, King Cyrus had issued the decree that the, the Jews were allowed to leave Babylon. They could go back to Israel and rebuild the temple. Okay, he issued that decree, uh, giving them permission to leave. And we read that decree in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and also in Ezra chapter 1. It records basically exactly the same thing. Okay, this decree by King Cyrus. And around 50,000 of the Jews of the remnant accepted and returned to Israel to rebuild the temple. And after much delay, the temple was completed in 515 BC. And then you have Ezra arrives on the scene. Okay, Ezra comes after that. He arrives on the scene at about 458 BC. So about 60 years later. He comes on the scene and he brings with him another group of returning exiles. Okay, so it's like a second wave, if you like, when Ezra comes. And then you have Nehemiah, becomes the governor in Judah in 445 BC. Of course, Nehemiah, he oversaw the rebuilding of the walls. That was his commission, wasn't it? To rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he served also as the governor there in Jerusalem for 12 years. After those 12 years, he returned back to Shushan, the palace. Okay, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 tells us that. He goes back to serve again uh, in Babylon okay, or in Sushan. And while he's away, while he's left Judah, left Israel, things begin to fall apart. Okay? While he's away, the, the, the remnant starts to go backwards spiritually. Okay? They start to, to go backwards away from the Lord, back to their old ways. And so this meant that when he did return to Jerusalem, Nehemiah had a task before him. He had to deal with some issues. He had to deal with sin and wickedness that had crept in. He had to reform the nation, if you like. And it's around that time that most commentators believe Malachi fits in. Okay? Around the time of Nehemiah's return to the, the nation of Israel, to Judah. You see, it seems that his, uh, Malachi's ministry closely aligns with what Nehemiah had to deal with. Okay? Uh, the sins that, ne- uh, that Malachi speaks about, Malachi has to address, are basically the same as what Nehemiah has to address. Now, the conditions described in Nehemiah are basically the same conditions described here in the book of Malachi. You know, Malachi talks about poor crops and a, a faltering economy in Malachi chapter 3, verse 11. He speaks about intermarriage with the heathen in chapter 2, verse 11. He talks about defilement of the priesthood in chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, Oppression of the poor, chapter 3, verse 5. A lack of support for the temple, chapter 3, verse 8 to 10. And he talks about a general disdain of religion in verse 13 as well. And all of those things are exactly what Nehemiah faced. Okay, you put the two beside each other, it's basically the same issues that Nehemiah is dealing with. And so most people believe that Malachi was either sent to work alongside Nehemiah or that he arrived just before Nehemiah, one or the other. He's either there to pave the way or he's there to work with Nehemiah. A bit like, you know, some of the other prophets had worked alongside Ezra, okay, and Nehemiah previously. Seems like Malachi is working with Nehemiah as well. Now, Malachi, as you know, is the very last of the Old Testament prophets. Okay? It's the last book, but he also is the very last to speak 
unto the people until John the Baptist comes on the scene. So after him, there is this period of silence, okay? the, the silent years as they're called, between Malachi and when John the Baptist comes on the scene fulfilling the words of Malachi's prophecy. Okay, chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Those words are speaking about John the Baptist. Okay? They are applied to him in the New Testament. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene fulfilling that very prophecy. And so Malachi here is the last prophet before all that, and he has the task of rebuking the people for their sin. And the task of calling them to return back to the Lord. You know, the messages of Malachi to Israel are ones that, you know, we need to take heed to as believers even today. You know, we shouldn't think as we start looking at the book of Malachi that, oh, you know, it's written to Israel. We don't need to pay attention. It's not for us. You know, the things that he addresses here are sins that we can be guilty of as well. They're things that we can uh, be guilty of as believers. And so it's a book that very much applies to us even today. And this evening we're going to look at the very first of these issues, if you like, these, these problems that Malachi had to deal with. And that was Israel was doubting God's love. Israel was doubting God's love. Just read with me in verse 1 to 5 again. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord by Israel, uh, sorry, to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, and I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. The very first thing that uh, sin here that Malachi addresses is the people's lack of love from God. And it stems directly from the fact that they didn't uh, believe God showed them love. They doubted God's love for them. You know, perhaps the reason that Malachi starts here with this, this issue of love is because, you know, a lack of love for God is the source of all other sins, isn't it? If we don't love God, then it leads to disobedience. Because if we love Him, we will keep His commandments, won't we? Okay, so love for God directly leads to obedience. It leads to us, it, it motivates us to live righteously, to live for Him. And so when we fail to love God, as we should, it leads us down a path of sin. And so it's a, a good place to start, isn't it? It's a good place to, to start when you're addressing these problems in the nation. You see, the nation of Israel, they should have loved God. They should have understood his love for them and they should have responded in kind. You know, for centuries the Jews have recited Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and they recite it daily as part of their prayer. Okay, In the morning and in the evening they quote these verses. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy minds. Every day, even today, the Jews pray that in the morning and they pray it in the evening. These words about who God is and the fact that they are to love him with all their heart and serve him 
accordingly. This is what the Jews uh, prayed every day. They understood this. The problem in Malachi's day was that they doubted that God even loved them. They doubted God's love towards them. And so their attitude in return was, why should we love God if he doesn't love us? That's the attitude Malachi is facing here. You see, verse 2 we read, it says, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? That's the question they're asking of God. Basically, they're questioning God's love towards them. And it's affecting the way they live. It's affecting the way they act. You know, down through the ages, God had displayed his love for the nation of Israel, hadn't he? You, know, you and I can immediately begin to think of all the things that God has done for them to show his love for them. I mean, he chose Israel to be his special people. He delivered them from the bondage of Egypt and brought them forth and brought them through the wilderness. He brought them into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and gave them every blessing when they entered into the land. You know, the prophet Hosea, which we looked at a while back, the prophet Hosea describes the love of God as being like the love of a husband for his wife. That's how much God loved Israel. But Israel was like an unfaithful wife, weren't they? They forsook the Lord. They, they chased after false gods. They played the harlot, essentially. They'd forsaken the Lord. But you know, through it all, God had not forsaken them. Through it all, God had remained a loving husband towards Israel. His love for Israel had always remained the same. It had not changed. You know, it was because he still loved Israel that he had delivered them from Babylon, wasn't it? It was because he loved them that he motivated King Cyrus to make that decree for the remnant to come home. And so it's surprising then for us to read here Israel responding by saying, wherein hast thou loved us? It's a, it's, it's a surprising response, isn't it? To hear them say, wherein hast thou loved us? Basically, they're saying to God, where is the evidence of your love? You know, to us, looking at all that God has done for Israel, it's pretty unfathomable, isn't it? How could they come to this conclusion? How could they even ask this question? How could they even begin to doubt God's love? But that is the reality before Malachi. The people are doubting the love of God. And so Malachi addresses this issue by offering them proofs that God really does love them. And there's two proofs that I want us to see this evening. The first of these is God's electing grace. God's electing grace. Verse 2, it says, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet... I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Malachi begins here by pointing out to them God's choice of Jacob over Esau. He points to God's choice. He says, you want evidence of God's love? Look at the fact that God chose you, chose Jacob, chose you in Jacob as a nation over Esau and his descendants. In verse 2 and 3 there it says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau. Now, of course, I'm sure that we're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau. You know, Esau, of course, was the firstborn son in the family. 
And so as the firstborn son, he naturally had the right to the, the blessing. He had the right to uh, the inheritance, the birthright. It should have been his. He was the firstborn son. But instead, God gave them to his younger brother, Jacob. That was God's decision. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 25. And just quickly, Genesis 25 and verse 21. <clears throat> In Genesis 25 verse 21 it says, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together with her, within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. You know, God made Rebecca aware of his decision while the children were still in the womb. God made her aware of this, this choice that he had made. That God, God made her aware of the fact that both sons would end up being the father of nations and that one nation would be stronger than the other and one would serve the other. The older would serve the younger. You know, God basically told her the blessings, the birthright was going to go to Jacob. It was God's decision. Now, of course, we know Jacob tricked his brother out of the birthright, didn't he? He tricked his father into giving him the blessing. You know, that wasn't God's will. That's not how God wanted it to take place. But it was God's will that he get the blessing. It was God's will that he get the birthright, so that it goes to Jacob and his descendants. You know, the descendants of Esau, they still had land assigned to them. They still were given land and they still became a great nation. But God didn't give to them the covenants of blessing that he gave to Jacob and his descendants. They didn't get any of that. The blessings belonged to Jacob, to Israel. You know, the difference between the two nations here is expressed by God. It says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, some people stumble at the word hate here. You know, they ask the question, how could God hate Esau? You know, doesn't God love all people? Well, the word hate here doesn't uh, express the wrath of God towards Esau. It doesn't express the idea that God hated him and showed animosity towards him and, and expresses wrath towards him. That's not what it's talking about here. Rather, it expresses the fact that God's love for Jacob was so great that in comparison... His actions towards Esau look like hatred. That's what it's saying here. That's what Malachi is pointing out to the people. God loved you so much. In comparison, he hated Esau. And the meaning of the word here is easily understood when we look at other passages in the word of God where it's used in the same way. Just turn to Genesis 29 with me. <clears throat> Genesis 29 and uh, look at me in verse 30. In Genesis 29, verse 30, it says, And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction, 
Now therefore my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard and I, that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Here we have Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah. In verse 30, it describes Rachel as being loved more than Leah. In verse 31 and 33, it describes Leah as being hated. And again, it doesn't mean that Jacob showed wrath towards Leah. It doesn't mean he, he showed hatred towards her. But rather, it means that he didn't show her the same kind of love that he showed unto Rachel. And so in comparison to his love for Rachel, Leah was hated. It's a comparison, isn't it? The same is true in the New Testament in Luke chapter 14. Just turn over there. <clears throat> Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 26, it says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Here we have the Lord talking about discipleship. And the Lord says if we want to be his disciple, then we must hate our family. Well, again, the word hate here is used in a comparative sense. It's saying that our love for God, our love for the Lord is to be so great that in comparison, it seems like we hate our family. It's a comparison. And that's the point here in Malachi chapter 1, where it says that the Lord loved Jacob and hated Esau. It's a comparison between the two. The Lord is pointing out a comparison between not only Jacob and Esau, but between the two nations. You know, one nation is blessed by the Lord. God's hand of blessing is upon them. His, his love is upon them. The other, in comparison, is hated. You see, God chose Jacob and his descendants. God chose Israel to be his special people. You know, God made that choice in his foreknowledge. He knew that Jacob would be a man of faith. But he knew that Esau would be a man of the flesh and and the book of Hebrews talks about that. Okay, Jacob would be, was a man of faith. Esau was a man of the flesh. And so God chose Jacob, the man of faith, to be the nation through whom the blessings would come. And so his choice of them as a nation showed how much God loved them. This is his starting point. It's a, it's a strong starting point, isn't it? He says, you want evidence of God's love? God chose you and rejected Esau. God chose the Israelites, rejected the Edomites. You know, we could say the same thing as believers today, couldn't we? God's choice of us shows his love to us. You know, God has chosen to save all who believe, all who place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He's chosen us in him. Notice that it's not unconditional election. You know, the Calvinists would love us to understand this as being unconditional election, that God chose some to heaven and some to hell. And it's God's choice. It's not unconditional election. There is a condition here. To be part of the elect, we have to be in Christ. We have to place our faith 
and trust in Him. God chose to save all who believe, who place their faith and trust in the Lord. God has chosen us in Christ. You know, like Israel, that choice is enough to prove that God loves us, isn't it? The fact that God has chosen us in Christ, that He's saved us, that He's adopted us as His children, that we are His chosen people, that's enough to demonstrate God's love. Now, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. Beloved, we are chosen. Chosen in Christ to be His special people, to be the children of God, the sons of God. It's a privileged position that shows us that God loves us. He loves us. And you know, that position... Just like Israel's position comes with it special blessings. And that's Malachi's second proof. It's God's evident blessing upon the nation of Israel. God's evident blessing upon the nation of Israel. Look at me in verse 3. It says, And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build what I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. You see, like the other nations in the area, you know, the Edomites suffered when the Babylonians invaded Israel. Okay? We often forget, but when the Babylonians came up against Israel, they didn't just attack Israel on their own. They attacked attacked all the other nations around. And the Edomites are one of them. They suffered as well at the same time, at the hands of the Babylonians, at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the Edomites suffered more than that in that eventually they were driven from their land completely by the Nabataeans. They were completely driven from their land. They had no home anymore. In verse 3 here, it declares that the nation of Edom was laid waste. It says... And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Eventually, Edom was laid waste. Now, Israel, they had suffered. They would suffered by being taken into captivity in Babylon. But you know, the Edomites, they had been completely laid waste. There's two totally different outcomes here, isn't there? One had suffered for a period of time in captivity, but then God had miraculously delivered them. The other was laid waste. You know, verse 4 describes for us the pride of the Edomites. It says, Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. You know, basically when this happened, the Edomites, they boasted, that they were going to come back to their land. They, they boasted that they were going to quickly return home and rebuild what was destroyed, take back what was theirs. You know, unlike Israel, God gave them no promise of restoration. God gave them the complete opposite. The Edomites, they've lost their land, but there was no promise that they'd come back. Instead, God said, if you build, I'll cast it down. He said, yeah, they'll try, but I'm going to throw it back down again. God had finished with the Edomites. They were cast down never to rebuild again, never to be restored again. 
You know, God even calls the Edomites here the border of wickedness. He says, and they shall call them the border of wickedness. Basically, basically that means the wicked land. That's what God called them, the wicked land. You know what a contrast that is. You have the Edomites called the wicked land, and you have Israel called the holy land. Two totally different contrasts, isn't it? One's the wicked land, one's the holy land. Both suffered judgments, but unlike Israel, Edom would never be restored again. Now, the book of Obadiah, which, again, we've already looked at, addresses the Edomites and their wickedness. It makes it clear that you know, the Edomites were not innocent. They deserved the judgment that came their way. They were a wicked nation. And God dealt with them, and they would never be restored. And that's the prophet's point here. Okay? You know, back in verse 2, they say, Wherein hast thou loved us? You know, we doubt your love, God. Where is the evidence of your love? And the prophet Malachi, he says to the Israelites, he says, You want the evidence of God's love? Look at the state of your brethren. Look at the state of the Edomites, your close relatives. Look at them and then look at yourselves. Look at where they are and look at where you are. The Edomites had no home. They were desolate. They had nothing and they were never going to be restored. The Israelites, they were back in their land again. Complete contrast. The evidence of God's love was right before them. You see, for Israel, the Babylonian invasion was the chastening hand of God to correct them. But for the Edomites, it was the beginning of God's final judgment against them. You know, all Israel had to do to see the evidence of God's love was to look at Edom. You know, in complete contrast to Edom, you know, God had spared the Jews. He'd spared them in Babylon. He'd, he preserved a remnant. Now, as we saw in the introduction, he'd moved King Cyrus to issue that decree that the Jews could go home and rebuild the temple. After that, God had given them the godly leadership of Joshua, the high priest. He'd given them Zerubbabel. He'd given them Nehemiah and Ezra. <coughs> God had blessed them time and time again. They're back in the land and they've got these godly leaders leading them in the right direction. He'd sent them also the prophets Haggai, the prophet Zechariah, and he'd given them now Malachi as well. God had not forsaken them, had he? God's love was evident to them if they just looked for it. You see, without doubt, God was with his people and God was blessing them. God hadn't forsaken Israel. You see, yes, they had suffered. And yes, Israel was a weaker nation than they once been. They were. You know, without doubt, they were weaker than they'd been before they went into captivity. They were a weaker, poorer nation. But God still loved them. They were still God's people. Nothing had changed. He hadn't forsaken them. In fact, the very reason they existed as a nation still was because God loved them. It was because of him they were back in the land. It was because of him they had a temple to worship at. It was because of him they had walls around Jerusalem. God had done it all. It was a miracle of God's love and grace that they existed as a nation. And that's what Malachi is pointing out to them here. He's saying, you want the evidence of God's love? Look at Edom and then look at yourselves. And God's love is right before you. It's right before your face. You see, the problem with Israel in Malachi's day, was that they had their eyes on everything else. 
They had their eyes on all of the problems going on, all of the issues, instead of upon the Lord and his daily blessings. You see, they failed to see God's love because their hearts weren't right with God and they were looking in all the wrong places. They were looking at the fact the crops were failing and saying, where's your love, God? Why aren't you making the crop grow? Well, the crop wasn't growing because their hearts weren't right with God. They were missing God's blessing. They were missing God's love because they were looking in all the wrong places. The reality is if they got their hearts right with God, then God's blessings would flow even more. Now, Malachi ends this, this section here in verse 5. He says, And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Malachi ends this section by telling the people, he says, when you look at Edom, you will see for yourselves God's love. You will see how much God loves you. He says, when you look at Edom, you'll be forced to admit that God indeed has demonstrated his love for Israel. Israel would be forced to acknowledge that God is showing himself great by his love, by his treatment of Israel. You know, beloved, like the children of Israel, we can see clear evidence of God's love to us as his children, can we not? The evidence of God's love is all around us. The evidence of God's love is before us every single day. The blessings that are ours in Christ. You know, these are blessings that are unique to us as his children. They don't belong to anyone else. They belong to us. Why? Because we're chosen in Christ. They're blessings that belong to us. Blessings like the peace that's in our hearts. It's a peace that no one else can know. It's a peace that comes from Christ. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within. We, we have a home in heaven. And here on earth, we have every need provided, don't we? Every need is provided for us by our loving Father. Indeed, we are His children, and He is our loving Father. The unsaved, they don't have that same hand of blessing upon them. God loves them, yes. He loves them. He wants them to come to him. He wants them to repent and get saved, doesn't he? But you and I who are in Christ, we have a special place before God. And his hand of love, his hand of blessing is upon us every single day. But you know, at times, we can be guilty of the exact same thing as Israel, can't we? We can be guilty of looking at our life, looking at the problems that we're facing, looking at the issues before us, and turning to God and saying, Lord, wherein is thy love? You know, wherein hast thou loved us? We're failing to see God's hand of blessing. Why? Because we're focusing on everything else instead of upon him. Failing to see his love. You know, we can be guilty of focusing on the trials that we're going through as individuals. We can be guilty of focusing on the trials we're going through as a church. You know, if we focus on the trials instead of focusing on the Lord, we're going to miss the blessing. We're going to miss how God loves us. You know, it leads to a wrong reaction in the midst of that trial, doesn't it? We're focused on the trial and our hearts aren't right before God and we're getting all depressed and upset. It's a wrong reaction, isn't it? We start turning away from the Lord. Our hearts aren't right before Him and God doesn't get the glory. Well, we need to remember that even when we're going through the deepest, darkest trials in our lives, the, the toughest times in our lives, God still loves us. Nothing's changed. We're still His chosen, aren't we? We're still in Christ. And He still loves us as His children. 
God is in control. As we say many times, God has allowed that trial to come for a reason, hasn't he? Even if we don't understand why, God still loves us and there's a purpose. His hand of blessing is upon us and his love is evident if we will only focus on him. Now, Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22, and we'll close with this, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Indeed, God is faithful, isn't he? His compassions, his mercies are new every morning to us as believers. Beloved, we need to focus on him. As we go through trials and afflictions, and we do as brethren, don't we, as believers, there's someone in our midst going through. Beloved, we need to keep our eyes on the Lord and know that his love has not changed. We are his children. Great is his faithfulness. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. But we thank you that even in a book like this, the book of Malachi, addressed to the children of Israel, Lord, we can see, uh, Lord, how it applies to us as believers today. And Lord, we can be guilty of the same sin of doubting your love towards us. But Lord, just the knowledge that we are your children and the blessings that are ours because you are our Heavenly Father, Lord, demonstrates clearly just how much you love us. And Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us every day, no matter what we're going through, to focus on you and to see your love and to rejoice in your faithfulness to us. For indeed, they are new every morning. And you do not fail us, Lord. We, we thank you and we praise you for that. Bless as we close and may we leave singing your praise this evening in Jesus' name.